Well, as we open God's word together, let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, each of us uh, this morning as we uh, come into this room together, uh, we bring an element of our own foolishness and we're desperate for your wisdom. We come here with blind spots and we need your vision. We come here with dullness of hearing and so we need to hear your voice and hear it clearly. We come with hardness of heart and so we pray that in your tender mercy, you would soften it so that we might listen to you, hear you, obey you, and do what is right as we follow you as our good king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This country, with its institutions, belongs to the people who inhabit it. Whenever they shall grow weary of the existing government, they can exercise their constitutional right of amending it or their revolutionary right to dismember or overthrow it. Abraham Lincoln spoke those words on March 4th, 1861, during his first inaugural address. And he delivered his speech from the steps of a domeless Capitol building, still under construction. Lincoln was now president of this fragile, fledgling nation, a country on the verge of civil war, as exposed as the scaffolding that set the backdrop for his address. Seven states had already seceded when he gave this address. Others would soon follow. And because of his stance on slavery, they had exercised, in his words, their revolutionary right. And the war that would ensue, the deadliest in our history, history nearly dismembered this great nation. Hundreds of thousands of people, once fellow citizens, died as bitter foes. What causes this kind of conflict between countrymen? How did these once amicable Americans become entrenched enemies? What leads to this sort of deep-seated division from states that were supposedly united? Where you grew up might influence how you would answer that question, but regardless of what you think about the origins of the American Civil War, listen to what James says in his epistle as he asks and answers these very questions, we're reading from the same chapter that Mitchell read from earlier. James 4.1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's the warring passions in our hearts that lead to conflict, from personal relationships to international relations. And transfers of power and leadership vacuums present the perfect opportunities for quarrels and fights and murder. In our passage this morning, 2 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 32, that's exactly what we find, a leadership vacuum. Saul, the first king of Israel who reigned disobediently and disgracefully for 40 years, has just died in battle against the Philistines alongside three of his sons, the, the potential future heirs. And undoubtedly, God's people are asking questions. What comes next? Who will lead us? What will become of us now that our first and only king has died? Leadership vacuums often lead to power grabs. 
And David, God's anointed king to be the one set apart by the Lord, steps forward to rule as he should. But Saul's cousin Abner, driven by a passion for power and self-preservation, props up Saul's last remaining living son, Ishbosheth, to lead a rebel faction. God's people have a choice to look to God, to follow his man, and to receive his loving kindness and extend it to others. And here's the theme that unfolds in this passage. Look to the true king, submit to his rule, and extend his peace. This passage is divided into two main parts, represented by two competing kings that are ruling warring kingdoms, the kingdom of David in the first seven verses and the kingdom of Ishbosheth in verses 8 through 32. And as we look at several characteristics of these two very different kingdoms, we'll see that their kings serve as shadows, as portraits of two princes who've been enemies ever since one fell from heaven, the prince of darkness and the prince of peace. And they both continue to vie for our hearts, even now in this moment. So as we open our Bibles, let's start by considering the kingdom of David, the anointed one, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. Now recall back in 1 Samuel 16, after King Saul's repeated failure to obey the Lord, God had led the prophet Samuel to anoint his replacement, the young shepherd David, the son of Jesse. And at that point, David became the king designate. He became the the future monarch who would wait for decades before he could finally take office. And as, as he waited, we find him moving from Bethlehem, where his hometown is, to Saul's service in Gibeah before finally fleeing for the fear of his life and moving all over Israel and Philistia to escape Saul's jealous and murderous pursuit. But now that Saul has died in battle, David can finally settle down with his family back in the land of Israel after years of living on the run. And we've seen David's ups and downs through this period, times of fidelity and others of disobedience, but his reform is on full display as he seeks the Lord. What we see in this man, David, anointed to be king, is a return to depending on divine guidance. He hasn't always done this in the wilderness wanderings, as we've seen for quite a few weeks. But having mourned the death of Saul, he now contemplates where he and his family should live, no longer resorted to life on the run or finding harbor in enemy Philistine territory. So he inquires of the Lord. He asks if he should return to Judah, that portion of the promised land that was allotted to his own tribe. The word for inquire in Hebrew is sha'al, whose past tense form is sha'ul, or as we read it, Saul. Saul failed to live up to his name because he often acted without inquiring of the Lord. But here we see David returning to his crucial kingly step of seeking the Lord's guidance. This likely means that he did what we find in 1 Samuel 30, requesting Abiathar, the priest, to use the ephod with the Urim as a means of determining direction. To this day, we still don't know entirely what that entailed, um, but likely it functioned like casting lots or, or throwing dice. Regardless, when David asks if he should go to Judah, the Lord's answer is yes. And when he asks following up where he should go, which specific city in Judah, the Lord's answer is to Hebron. But David doesn't just seek divine guidance. In verse two, we find him also obeying God's direction. 
Verse 2. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now, Hebron was a significant city in Israel's history. It figures very prominently in the book of Genesis. Hebron is where Abraham settled by the oaks of Mamre after separating from his nephew Lot. It's where Abraham's wife Sarah died and was buried. It's where their son Isaac died and was buried. It was previously called Kiriath Arba, a land of giants, and Hebron was eventually given to Caleb, the spy, for his faithfulness. It was also a city of refuge where people could flee for justice in the event of an accidental death. But for all the historical reasons for David to move to Hebron, God's guidance is sufficient for him. He tells him to go, and so he goes. He moves with his two wives and the men who have supported him along with their families to Hebron. Again, this is odd. He's, he's a polygamist, and he's um, violating what we find in Genesis um, chapter 1 and 2 related to marriage. Um, yet he moves with his family and all those that have supported him with their families to Hebron and the surrounding villages. He's already been anointed to be the next king of Israel, but it's here at Hebron that his people anoint him now as the acting king over his tribe, the tribe of Judah. David then returns to, turns to offer his good rule to the people of Jabesh-Gilead. Look at the end of verse 4. When they, that is his servants, told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to him, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now, you may remember that one of Saul's very first acts as king was saving the people of Jabesh-Gilead from a, an Ammonite siege. This is a reminder that not every single thing that Saul did was bad. Last week, we saw how the people of Jabesh-Gilead remembered Saul's kindness to them, and they gave him a proper burial after the Philistines had completely disrespected his body and the bodies of his sons. How would you expect David, the man who was hunted by Saul for years, to treat the people who had shown honor to the dishonorable king? With suspicion? With fear? Would he take a wait-and-see approach to see how they would uh, engage with him? Or would he go on the offensive and take a preemptive strike against these people who showed honor to Saul? Well, we see how he responds in verse 5. He shows them honor. He shows them mercy. When David hears about this act of kindness, his response is totally shocking to us. He offers a blessing from the Lord, and we see David's heart in this reaction. Even after Saul's death, we see David's unwavering commitment to honor the Lord's anointed. Just think for a moment what David has endured at Saul's hand. Jealous rage, murder attempts approaching double digits. And yet David honors this rebellious, unrepentant, rejected king. Now think of the leaders God has placed over us. Regardless of their leadership, despite any immoral stances or actions they might take. This is what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2. 
Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. In verse 17, he continues, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. A thousand years before Peter would write these words, David was modeling this principle of submission to leadership, the leadership that God had established, whether good or bad. And he holds a stance of honoring those in governance. And I think it strikes us. It forces us to ask the question, what is our stance of honoring those in governance? What is the disposition of our hearts toward our county board members, to our state leaders, to our representatives in Congress, our senators, our president and his cabinet? Regardless of how we view their policies, we see here David models the heart posture that David commands in his word, and that is to honor the king. Now, if you look at the map, if you look at the map, David's gesture might seem to us like some sort of self-serving political maneuver. Um, adding Jabesh Gilead to his new, uh, his new uh, kingdom would have extended his rule far north of the kingdom of Judah, but it isn't political. What's crystal clear in his message is a sincere desire to honor those who had honored Saul. And he offers a blessing of the Lord's hesed, his loving kindness, his loyal covenantal love, and he offers God's truth. He's asking God through this blessing to love the people of Jabesh Gilead in the same faithful way that they had loved Saul in his death. And David then offers an invitation to them. He, he invites them to his new kingdom with a promise of showing them the same goodness that they themselves have shown. But little does David know that he has competition in Gilead. There's another king who's filled the leadership vacuum among the northern tribes of Israel. Having considered the characteristics of David's rule as God's anointed king of Judah, we now turn to the rival kingdom of Ishbosheth, the puppet king. In verse 8, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth and the son of Saul and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Notice, if you will, Abner's prominence in these verses. He, he's the starting subject. Abner is Saul's cousin. He's the son of Saul's uncle uh, Ner. And he's first introduced to us as the commander of Saul's army all the way back in 1 Samuel 14. We find Saul rise to the king, become king, and Abner is right next to him. Now, what we don't find in these, these verses is Ishbosheth stepping forward to rule. We don't see him grabbing for power or insisting that he sit on his father's throne. What we see is Abner at work. He's propping him up to reign all of Israel, including Gilead, in the vacuum that was created by his death, Saul's death. And there's clear ambition for selfish gain here, but it appears to be Abner's and not Ishbosheth's. This is the first that we've even heard of Ishbosheth. And in these few chapters where he appears, he comes off as a relatively weak man used by Abner to preserve power in their family. But Abner has been with Saul from the very beginning of his reign. He appears all throughout 1 Samuel. 
And he isn't just family. He's been Saul's right-hand man. Having the oldest living son to reign after the king's death would have been a logical step if it weren't for God's revelation that he wanted David to replace Saul after he rejected him as king. And prior to this revelation, Saul's oldest son, Jonathan, the crown prince of Israel, had been the heir apparent to the throne. That would have been the logical step for Israel. But I want you to listen again to Jonathan's heart before he died. We saw this back in 1 Samuel 23. And Jonathan said to David, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. Now if anyone had a right to expect the crown, it was Jonathan, the oldest son. But notice Jonathan's heart posture. It's one of submission to the express revelation of God. He may be the logical heir, but he knows that God has chosen David and he humbles himself to God's revelation and he promises to stand next to his friend whom he knows God has selected to become king instead. Jonathan also tells us that Saul knew that the Lord had chosen David to replace him. And so we can assume that his right-hand man, Abner, knew too. After all, it was Abner who brought David to Saul with Goliath's head in his hand after he defeated the Philistine giant. Abner knew that David was special. And in the chapter that follows ours, Abner reveals, he tells us himself, that he knew of David's anointing. When Ishbosheth makes an accusation against Abner, this is what he says in 2 Samuel 3, verses 9 to 10. He says, God do so to Abner. It's a little awkward. He's talking to, about himself in the third person here, which tells you a little bit about himself. <laughs> God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Abner knows that the Lord has sworn the kingdom to David, the entire land of Israel, and yet his selfish ambition has pushed him in this moment to ignore this promise, to, to reject this revelation, and to serve his own selfish interest, to preserve his own power, to maintain the influence that he has enjoyed as Saul's right-hand man for decades. Unlike Jonathan, the rightful heir, he's more concerned about his own position of prominence than he is the Lord's purposes and plans. And having established Ishbosheth as this puppet king, Abner's ambition for selfish gain presses him to go on the offensive against the men of Judah under the reign of the anointed King David, the one he knows has been set apart. And starting in verse 8, we see Abner and his men resorting to hostile resistance. Sorry, starting in verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon, and Joab, the son of Zariah, and servants of David, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young man arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. And then they arose and passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in the opponent's side. And so they fell down together. And therefore that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. 
Now, Abner should be submitting to his, his service to David. He should be turning over his responsibility to follow David, the Lord's anointed king. But instead, what he does is initiate a form of hostile resistance to his rule and it, and it attempts to preserve his own power. And the commander leads Ishbosheth's men to face off against David's men under the leadership of Joab, David's commander and his nephew. And they line the pool of Gibeon. Archaeologists discovered this pool in 1957. At the time, it was a round pool, 11 by 11 meters, and it was used for water storage. But here, it serves as the site for a gladiatorial contest suggested by Abner. And his recommendation is 12 rounds of man-to-man combat pitting one man from the tribe of Benjamin in Ishbosheth's kingdom against one man from the tribe of Judah in David's kingdom. And it seems like an attempt to limit bloodshed. Abner calls it a competition, a contest, the Hebrew word for laugh or entertainment. This word is the same root as the name Isaac. The goal seems to be a determination of God's favor. Who are the real Isaacs? Who are the real true children of Abraham? Joab agrees to the contest, but the result after 12 rounds is 12 deadlocks, 24 dead men, 12 from each side, as each combatant killed the other one as they fought one another. And so this place in Gibeon was known as Helkath Hazarim, the field of daggers or the field of hostilities. Now, in that first inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln highlights the challenge of a war between countrymen. And he said, suppose you go to war, you cannot fight always. And when after much loss on both sides and no gain on either, you cease fighting, the the identical old questions are again upon you. He's saying that in the end, if no gains are made by fighting, you still have to negotiate terms to determine what will happen next. A battle that ends in a draw decides nothing. Well, this contest is a draw, but it's followed by an actual battle in verse 17. That day, the battle was very severe, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And we find the actual numbers of the difference in the latter part of the chapter, where we find that David's servants were 20 in all that he lost, but Abner's men, 360. But despite these results, Abner doesn't surrender. He will not give in. He's too driven. And as he retreats, David's fleet-footed nephew, Asahel, pursues him in verse 18. And the three sons of Zariah were there. Zariah uh, is is David's sister, so these are his nephews. Uh, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now, Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner and as he went he turned neither to the right hand nor the left hand from following Abner and then Abner looked behind him and said is it you Asahel? He didn't know who it was who was chasing him so he asks and somehow in his speed he's able to give an answer Asahel is and he answered it is I. Abner said to him turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. Isn't that an awesome general? Uh, Don't kill me why don't you kill one of these other of my men instead of killing me? But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. And therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out of his back. 
And he fell there and died where he was, and all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. Now, in uh, Abner uh, tries to throw the speedy Asahel off his trail, he even recommends, like we saw, that he, that he kill another soldier and his army is said. But Asahel has his eyes on the commander. He's determined to defeat the man behind the rebel kingdom. Unable to outrun Asahel, Abner resorts to quick thinking. Now, spears would often be placed in the ground at camp. And he uses the butt of his spear, which would have a sharpened end, not as sharp as the main part of the spear, but he uses the butt of his spear in quick thinking to impale his pursuer and kills him in gruesome fashion. And when David's people finally happen up upon the place of Asahel's death, they stop. They're in total shock. But Asahel's brothers pick up the pursuit of Abner in verse 24. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on top of a hill. And then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? Now, in their flight, Abner stands with his men from Benjamin at the top of a hill, and he turns to address David's nephews who are chasing him, Joab and Abishai, and his words seek to shift the blame. Shall the sword devour forever? Abner's blaming Joab and all the men of David for the bloodshed that he himself proposed in the hostilities of the contest. He's saying, don't you know that the result can only be bitterness? Joab, tell your men to turn back from pursuing their brothers. And certainly they are brothers, fellow Israelites. But when Abner was the aggressor, he didn't seem to care that they were brothers, did he? When he was setting up Ishbosheth as the puppet king, he didn't care that they were brothers. <clears throat> And so he shifts blame. Now he finds himself on this losing end of the battle. He fails to take personal responsibility for these hostilities against the men of the true king. And so his response as he faces defeat is to shift the blame to Joab. But Joab points it right back to him in verse 27 when he says, As God lives, if you had not spoken, that is, if you had not recommended this contest, surely then the people would have gone away in the morning, each from following his brother. Again, we see the similarities of another civil war in Lincoln's inaugural speech when he said, There needs to be no bloodshed or violence, and there shall be none unless it is forced upon the national authority. And forced it was. The march to Gibeon was Abner's idea. The hostile contest was Abner's idea. There wouldn't have been any bloodshed if he'd never initiated in the first place. And so Joab pushes the responsibility right back to where it belongs on Abner. Nevertheless, Joab calls off the pursuit in verse 28 and each of the armies returns to their home base with David's men departing as clear victors. Verse 28 so Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah and they crossed the Jordan and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. 
Now, the people of Jabesh Gilead had a choice. Might not really seem like it in this passage, but they had a choice. They had a choice to follow the true king, David, or the puppet king, Ishbosheth. And as we consider this passage and its implications for our lives, we have a similar choice. There's a civil war that wages each and every day, and it takes place in our hearts. There's a quotation in my prayer journal that I read frequently from John Newton, the one-time slave trader who would have a radical encounter with Christ. Newton would go on to become the Anglican minister and abolitionist who's best known for penning the words to Amazing Grace. This is what Newton wrote. My heart is like a country but half subdued where all things are in an unsettled state and mutinies and insurrections are daily happening. I hope I hate the rebels that disturb the king's peace. I'm glad when I can point them out, lay hold of them and bring them to him for justice. But they have many lurking holes and sometimes they come disguised like friends so that I do not know them till their works discover them. Now, knowing that this is how the great John Newton felt, I don't know about you, it's a, it's a huge encouragement to my heart. That's how Newton felt. And yet, it's a reminder of the daily work that we must do to fight the resistance. How can we lay hold of the rebels and bring them to the king for justice? How can we be certain that the friends that we think are in our hearts are not actually rebels? Well, the theme of this passage are really just three points of application as we consider this gripping but challenging passage and what it means for us all these millennia later. And the first is just to look to the true king. A spiritual battle wages all around us. And as I already mentioned, the kings of this passage point to princes who are vying for our hearts, the prince of darkness and the prince of peace. But Satan is a puppet king who has established a counterfeit kingdom. Abner's maneuvers in this passage are taken straight out of Satan's playbook, starting with ambition versus selfish gain. Satan once held a position of great prominence in God's heavenly court, but he's the chief of those angels who rebelled against God's good rule and fell from heaven out of selfish ambition. In 2 Corinthians 4, uh, the apostle Paul calls him the God of this world who's blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. That's what Abner did. He kept the people of Jabesh Gilead from seeing the true king. He's rejected God's revelation, Satan has, and he constantly calls his truth into question, asking us the same question that he asked Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? And he resorts to hostile resistance. Jesus calls him a murderer from the beginning. His doom is sure and he will do everything he can to take anyone he can down with him. After Satan deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, they tried to pass the blame. We do it too because we inherited their sin. And the Bible tells us that we are born as enemies of God, rebels against his will. This is James 4, yet again, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Ah, but there's hope. There's hope for all of us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, 
We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. When we trust in the true king, when we trust in his death and resurrection, we are no longer his enemies but friends. We are no longer far off but we become family. And to deal with the civil war in our hearts, we must first look to the true king and trust in him. And if this is news to you, I hope it's good news. I hope you'll believe it, and I hope you'll believe it today. The second way we address the war waging in our hearts is, submit, is to submit to Christ's good and perfect rule. Recall also from James 4 that the cause of the internal civil war is our passions that are at war within us. They lead to fights and quarrels because we're more concerned with pleasing ourselves than serving the true king. And we make ourselves to be our own rulers. We reject God's goodness and we say to God, I want my way. I'll serve no one but myself. And when we do that, we're just puppet kings ourselves, propped up by the ultimate puppet king. The people of Judah did what was right and submitted to David, the anointed king. And it's a picture of submission to God's anointed king, Jesus. And his rule is marked by loving kindness, loyal, everlasting love. And it's marked by his truth. His instruction to us in his word, they're good. And as the creator of this world, he is the source of all wisdom about how we should live in it. He guides us because he loves us. And we are, when we trust in his son, Jesus, he becomes our savior and he becomes our Lord. We demonstrate our love for him by doing what he commands. So where today are you tempted to ignore the Lord's instruction? Where are you writing and following your own law? Where do you need to make a course correction to submit to the good rule of King Jesus. What begins at salvation persists throughout our lives and that is progressive growth to become more and more like King Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit who indwells us when we believe. And this is marked by an ever-increasing submission to Christ and an ever-decreasing faltering in our flesh. This doesn't happen once for all when we first believe, but it happens daily as we yield ourselves, as we turn over our hearts to God for his precious work in it. We read his word. We pray for help. We sit under the preaching and teaching of the word as we gather together on the Lord's Day each and every Sunday. We study his word in community. And as we are confronted with God's perfect and holy standard, we confess our sins, we repent of them, and we plead for the Spirit's help that we might obey Christ to his glory because his rule is perfect and it's good. It's good. We look to the true king, we submit to his rule, and third, we extend his peace. After all, Jesus is the prince of peace. And peace is more than just an absence of conflict. It means wholeness and harmony and welfare and wellness we might prefer to distance ourselves from Abner's violent efforts in this passage. But our words, whether spoken or written or online, and our actions are often more hostile than we might like to admit. In contrast, David peacefully invited the people of Jabesh Gilead to become citizens in his kingdom under his good rule. And we have a similar privilege, a privilege to make a similar invitation to those 
we know to join the one who sits on David's throne. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us and he invites others to shelter under Christ's peaceful rule. Paul writes, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be at peace with God. For our sake he made him to be no sin, that is Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're messengers of God's peace. But our message won't mean much if we ourselves don't demonstrate that peace in our own lives. If we gossip about others, if we bully, if we stir dissension instead of building unity, if we're harsh instead of being gentle, if we resort to hostility of any kind, such actions reflect the influence of the prince of darkness. But Jesus died and he committed no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth and he's our model. In his second inaugural address, delivered from the same Capitol steps four years later, the Capitol considerably closer to completion, Lincoln challenged Americans wearied by the war, and I quote him, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. But the end of the Civil War just months later didn't end the incivility. And the United States is not the kingdom of God, and we know that the only peace that truly lasts the only peace that will be forever is peace with God, an end to the enmity that our sin demands. And the only way to achieve that is to look to the true king and to submit ourselves to his perfect rule. And when we do that, we have the privilege, the great privilege of extending that peace to others to be used as instruments in the hands of the redeemer so that others might know his peace through Christ as well. And we have the privilege to do that to people of all nations. And so I close this morning with the words of Paul who makes this appeal in Philippians chapter 3. He writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ and their end is destruction, their God is their belly and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Fellow citizens of heaven, as we await this true king's return, let's worship him together. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're true and right and good and that you are love and that you've demonstrated your loving kindness to us through the cross of Christ. There's, there's no greater example that we could think of. And Father, I pray that we would look to you and your son Jesus today as king. I pray that we would all bow our hearts before him in worship and submission. I pray that there are things in our hearts even now or in our lives that we need to lay before you that we would do it now and ask for your spirit's help. And God, I pray that each and every one of us would be ambassadors 
of your gospel, messengers of your peace, and we thank you that it is possible to be at peace with you, our God in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.